Hello and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I've not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range then visit their website that can be found in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, welcome to Into the Wild. Where is she? Riley? Good girl, well done. How you doing? <laughs> As you can tell, I'm out on a walk with Riley. Here she is. I am in the beautiful Highgate Woods, uh, again, because it's my nearest green space. Um, I've just come to a tree. Um, that's not the end of the story. Um, <laughs> it's just the beginning. I've just stood at a really big oak tree because I've got the, the owl nest boxes here, so I can see them right in front. Um, I don't know if anything's using them at the moment, but you do hear them. Like I've walked around here at dusk before, you can hear the owls and stuff. So I always, hopefully, but no, there's no signs of anything. They might be in there. Um, but I hope you're all well. Autumn has officially arrived. I don't know if that's correct calendar-wise, but certainly around these, these old parts of London. Uh, the leaves are changing colours, the acorns are dropping on, on the head, the fruits are all out. It's, um, yeah, it's very exciting time of year. I love this time of year. Casseroles and stews. Oh, cooking tip for you. If anyone's veggie or vegan, don't listen to anyone when they say they've got to put suet in a dumpling. <laughs> that's, a new that's going to be the title of my first book. Don't listen to anyone that says you need to put suet in a dumpling. Um, you don't. I don't. I just use plain flour, butter, obviously vegan or veggie butter if you're vegan or veggie. A bit of salt, roll it up, plop it in the, in the stew. That's book number two, plop it in the stew. I'm tired, I'm tired because I've had a very busy working week. I'm going back to Namibia on Tuesday. So if you're listening to this on Monday, which is tomorrow for me, um, right now, then I'm going tomorrow, tomorrow evening back to Namibia to screen Beyond the Trigger to, uh, for the first time in Namibia. We've got a lot of people coming down. We've got local communities. We've got uh, people from government, people from organisations like WWF and Naxo coming down to watch the film. So it's very exciting. I've been doing lots of meetings, plan, planning meetings, uh, sending out invitations, sorting out the guest list, travel documents, all stuff like that. All getting ready to go to this beautiful Southern African country again. And I get to travel around a little bit as well to go and see the, the bit of a different environment this time. So last time we saw semi-desert, this time I'm seeing the actual desert, like sand dunes, rock formations, where it meets the ocean and stuff. It's going to be cool. We're really excited. Riley, this way. So that's, that's been my, uh, my week. And we've had a little bit, I don't, I don't want to talk about Beyond the Trigger too much on this show. I mean, I do to promote it, obviously, but um, I'm aware some of you are here just for the episode. But I do want to, we've noticed a bit of feedback from people online, ironically, people that haven't even seen the film yet, because it's not officially out for public screening just doing the private screenings at the moment. People trying to pick holes in it saying it's, um, you know, it's biased or we've come from a position of pro trophy hunting, which is not true. Um, and it's, we're pushing one side to try. And it's, it's just, I, I always find these kind of points about a documentary interesting because for me, documentary shouldn't be about 
pushing aside. It's, it's documentaries are stories. They're t- just telling, telling stories, right? Obviously, there are some things documentaries might be about which the story itself is so strong that it might show a side to be uh, more, I don't know, more accepted than, and, than the other. But the story should do that for itself. It's not for the documentary maker or the filmmaker to add that in. And that's the same with Beyond the Trigger. You know, I've got my views, got my opinions, as does Oscar. But we worked very hard to make sure they didn't slip into the film. You know, this, this film was about platforming voices, uh, some voices from selected conservancies in Namibia that are then um, presented back. You know, we, that was it. And the only, the only time I really share a view in the film is when I'm talking about my own country. So I think, I think that's fair enough. Um, so yeah, it's, it's weird when people pick holes in it. And I think really what it boils down to is because of the topic, you know, I wonder if people would be this yeah, critical about a show if I was talking about uh, trophy hunting in, in England or deer stalking in England or, or just butterfly conservation in England. I wonder if they'd be angry at my bias coming in then. It's interesting, isn't it, what we're willing to accept in based on the topics and what we're not. We, we let the topic guide our acceptance of, um, I don't know, trust, I guess. Just something I've been pondering that I wanted to share with you all. Um, and a lot of people have been asking, when can I see the film? Um, you can see it very soon, hopefully in October. I'm just sorting out the, the final details. So TBC at the moment for a date, but we'll be doing a, um, a live YouTube screening. So you'll be set and then it'll be on YouTube for everyone to be able to watch if you can't make that date as well. Anyway, on to today's episode. Um, good girl, what did you find? Nothing. Did you find a squirrel, a grey squirrel? Did you tell it to <coughs> off? <laughs> no, she did, she definitely did. She hates grey squirrels. She hates them, don't you? She loves red squirrels. She's never seen one, I just tell myself that. On to today's episode. Today, ah, oh, this was such a lovely chat. I spoke to the wonderful Penny Green from Nep Estate, Nep Safaris. I absolutely adored this chat. I was so, so excited because Nep has been, I've never been to Nep. Um, although thanks to this episode, I've had a formal invitation, so I will be accepting that in the new year. <laughs> um, but it, I've never visited and I wanted to hear so much about it. I, I had so many questions about NEP. Um, loads of people talk about it from a rewilding perspective, from uh, land restoration, from uh, food production, uh, from ecotourism in the UK. There's so many perspectives um, or so many topics of conversation for NEP estate. I think oh, I, I could have spoken to Penny for hours about everything. And, you know, I think we nearly went down that route of doing so. Um, but I got to ask her everything from how does the ecotourism work? Do they think that's growing? Do, do they think they can be put elsewhere? How do you manage the numbers of species there? Then we're looking at food production from wild food and, you know, how is that all done? And it, there's so many questions I could have asked, but it was an absolutely lovely chat. And I think for those of you like me that haven't had a chance to go to Nepa State and either just visit or stay for a couple of nights, I really think this episode may push you into doing that. And this may, may be something you want to do anyway. Um, but maybe this might push you over the edge. It certainly pushed me over the edge to want to go. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much, it's a lovely episode. I really hope you enjoy it. And to learn more about uh, um, what this place has done for wildlife, for local communities and for food production in the local area as well. So this is a look at Nepa State with Penny Green.
Well, Penny, lovely to have you on. We've had this booked in the diary for ages. It's been in the diary a long time. <laughs> and I think we booked it way back in the spring when I just couldn't see beyond all the bird <laughs> surveys that we had to do at the time. And I was you were like, like, sure thing, August. I was like, <laughs> don't even know if I'll be alive by August, but let's give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, I didn't know I was going to still be alive. I was putting it off, so I thinking I might be dead by then. So yeah, exactly. I'd get yeah. out of it. Yeah. Need we know that it was going to be 40 degrees we were nearly at the apocalyptic it, stage, but we, we got through. It was pretty apocalyptic, it has to be said. But um, how, I've, I've got to ask, and the listeners will want to know, how yeah. were you guys at NEP with that weather? Was everything stable? Oh, yeah, I must say the most exciting thing here uh, that just proved a massive point and has yeah. given us loads of evidence for it is the beavers. Uh, <laughs> They are living in this amazing oasis in this parched landscape. You mm. go in the beaver pen. They've only been here six months, and it's awesome what they've done. You know, they've they've put three dams in in six months. Oh, you know, wow. they, they were damming within two hours of being here, uh, of releasing them. And we've got this amazing wetland in this two-hectare pen. And if that's not evidence for having beavers in our landscape to mm. mitigate cl- climate change, I don't know what it is. It's just awesome in there. It's full of life. You know, everywhere else is parched and droopy. And that's got all the life. Yeah, it's got all the dragonflies, all the insects. It's got, you know, all the frogs. It's got hobbies hunting overhead, eating all the mm. insects. We've got king, kingfishers fishing in the water because it's dried out everywhere else. We even saw, you know, normally it's like a little trickle of a stream coming in there. And uh, where they've dammed it all up, it's just this amazing big wetland now. And the stream going into the pen had completely dried out. So if we didn't have beavers here this year, we would have dried. the whole stream would have completely dried up. And I just That's think mad. what we need is beavers across our whole landscape to sort out this problem we're in. And they, they kind of they kind of have the right to be the most smug animal. In the, the UK best. right now. <laughs> they are the best. And we just, like, we got trail cameras in the pen and we just watch these videos of them and they just don't ever stop working. You know, that busy as a beaver thing. It's <laughs> yeah. true. They just are constantly working. You know, they're engineering the whole time because they like it wet. They're aquatic animals. So they're going to be working mm. really hard to get it as wet as possible in there. Um, you know, to help, you know, all the vegetation grow that they're going to then go on and eat. So, you know, it's in their interest and they're working really hard. You know, unlike loads of other wildlife that just, you know, eats a bit, sleeps, <laughs> breeds. <laughs> Take the beaver attitude. Come on. Yeah, I know. Get busy. So, um... <laughs> That's great to hear, though. And a lot of people, I've seen loads of things on social media in landscapes with beavers. And it just, it makes that point. Like you said, you can literally see the contrast sometimes with yeah. like land either side to it. So Absolutely. But I'm glad to hear it was a success. So good. Yeah. And, you know, the rest of, I mean, yeah, it's been tough the rest of the summer, but, um, you know, we're holding up and I think, you know, climate change is, is happening. It's here and mm. um, uh, hopefully beavers can, can show us a way forward that can work and can absolutely. Be, be absolutely amazing. Could be our saviour. Our saving grace is the beaver. Yeah, yeah definitely. Let's, let's get everyone clued up on what's going on. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am sat here with Penny Green. But would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and what is it you do, Penny? Um, I am very lucky to be the ecologist here at the Nepri Wilding Project. So I coordinate a lot of the research that goes on here. So we're trying to gather evidence to show what happens when intensively farmed land then goes into rewilding and how re- um, sort of habitats and wildlife can recover uh, with large herbivores driving the way forward for us. So, you know, very different to um, my sort of 
previous um, job in traditional conservation, yeah, um, you know, where you're very hands-on. Here we're kind of like, yeah, let's let it play out a bit and see what happens. And um, it, it's amazing seeing how, how quickly wildlife can come back to a depleted landscape. So very lucky to do that. And I also head up the safari business here as well. And that's all about get, getting people here on safari, getting them excited about rewilding and nature. And it's amazing just the amount of people we're seeing coming to visit. It's just, yeah, lovely. Really Isn't good. it like an ecologist dream? I think so. Is it like? No, <laughs> I'm just surprised I don't get hate mail or something. <laughs> From peers in the industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you damn you, Benny. <laughs> you make me so angry. Uh, no, it is amazing. I mean, it, don't get me wrong. It's it's hard work. Yeah, um, of course. And, yeah. And some days it's completely bonkers, but it's absolutely brilliant, and I love it. And mm. I love everyone I work with, and you know, I just feel super lucky to to be here. And to be talking to, you know, some of the ecologists and field naturalists that we have visit here who are helping us learn about rewilding, I feel so lucky to be in their presence when they come to visit because I learn yeah. so much from all of these people and specialists in their fields. And I think, God, how many people get this opportunity to be around lots of brilliant brains and, mm. um, you know, real kind of big thinkers. That are, it's know, inspiring, isn't it, yeah. to be around those kind of people? It Absolutely. really is. So I do feel very lucky. And yeah, if you want to send me hate mail... Uh, make sure there's some chocolates careful, with it or something careful what you ask for <laughs> you know as... how this world is yeah, good point don't send me any rules. send me love Christ, don't ask for it Penny. <laughs> <laughs> just keep doing what you're doing if it happens organically take it <laughs> send me valentine's cards and tell me how yes, much you yeah. love nature send gratitude not yeah. hate yeah. <laughs> I think that's the first time on the podcast and I've had a lot of guests where I've had someone go send me hate man <laughs> I realised now that was the wrong thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> There's an edit point, if ever there was one. Um, so <laughs> my next question, I'll tell you now. I mean, you did say, obviously, because we, we've rearranged some things, so you haven't seen these questions for a while. I've changed one of the questions because one of the questions, I know, but I think I've made it better because I was starting to get similar answers and there's always a indicator that I need to change it. So I'd usually ask people what they love most about the natural world, but Penny, what I'm going to ask you instead is what has been, and this should be, you should have a plethora of answers here, but I, what has been your nature highlight in the last seven days? The last seven days? Oh, okay. So we were bird ringing on Sunday morning. Mm. At this time of year, we're bird ringing because it's autumn migration. Yeah. I don't like to say the autumn word too early, but it does start no, but, like well, in July. Yeah, it started birds. in London, mate. It started about <laughs> two months ago. But bird migration, you know, their autumn migration is happening now and mm. it sort of started back in July, really. And so uh, we had a really good session Sunday morning. We were up. Uh, about four o'clock and we got up and put the nets up and you know I love hanging out with the the bird ringing crew here it's good fun Mm. and we had some great stuff coming through the nets you know all of those breeding warblers that we'd get here at Nepin in the wider landscape so garden warblers Mm. um, white throats lesser white throats black caps all starting to come through but we had two tree pipits and that's Ooh. only the second and third um, ones that we've had through the nets here. And it's lovely to see what them in the hand. Uh, yeah, yeah. And this, oh, wow, cool. So re- really cool. And then we saw, you know, a couple more flying around as well. So that, oh, that, nice. in the last seven days, my, my highlight's probably been the tree pipits, I think. That's no, it's nice. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. That's nice. Subtle, but, but lovely. <laughs> you got to enjoy the subtle things. Yeah. <laughs> but like you said, also a bit of a record. Only the second yeah. time you've seen them. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's nice. Yeah, lovely. Are you, are you seeing more come through? then like you said like it was it was is it taken a while for them to find a nep 
Yeah, I guess they probably are here, but we only we are only picking them up potentially, you know, through bird ringing. Right. So a lot of birds on autumn migration aren't that vocal, so you might not hear them or you know be in the right place at the right time. So that's where bird ringing is amazing for helping us highlight what's utilising the scrub during the autumn because it's like full of fruit. So you've got lots of blackberries and sloes and elderberries, those kind of things that. Um, and insects and seeds that all of these migrants coming through are stopping off and feeding up. So from the air, it must be like this amazing green oasis full of food. And they yeah. drop in, you know, on their sort of journey south and um, hopefully sort of stocking up, you know, putting down a bit of fat and muscle and heading south for the winter. So, amazing. you know, it's really helping us learn more about what utilises the scrub at this time of year because yeah. a lot of them are just silent, you know, they're just moving through feeding up quietly. Yeah, like you said, unless you're looking for them and you find yeah. them, like it's it's really, there's no other real indicators, really. So, yeah, that's cool. So, love it. And it's it's at the end of the season as well when you're sort of exhausted from all the bird surveys and all the early mornings <laughs> that we have. And then you think, you have a little break and you're like, oh, God, I have a few lines. And then you're back to your bird ringing. Back to the autumn one. Uh, and then you're, then you're up really early again and it's hard when your alarm goes off so early in the morning but once you're out in the field you're putting the nets up uh, you know the deer are just starting to roar the red deer are just starting to roar as they're getting ready for the rut and it's really atmospheric you know yeah. it's lovely being out at that time of day but you just have to drag yourself out of bed it's it's, it's the getting up point <laughs> oh, it's yeah. as soon as yeah i know what you mean mate i know what you mean once it's you're out, getting past lovely. the alarm and yeah. getting out of bed once you can put two feet on the floor you're like right yeah. i'm done yeah, I'm, up. yeah I'm, I'm up and I'm going, I'm doing this. Get me a latte and I'm good to <laughs> yes, go. Absolutely, the caffeine is important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about NEP. For anyone that's not listening, because we, we have non-UK listeners as well, so I think it's uh, safe to say most of our listeners in the UK would have at least heard the words NEP estate in the last few few years. But for anyone that hasn't, what is NEP estate and what happens there? So the NEP estate embarked on a really cool, rewilding project in about the year 2000 and we have moved away from being an intensive arable and dairy farm mm-hmm. um, that was making huge losses because of the kind of soil that we're on here on heavy uh, sort of clay soil here that's not great for growing crops in mm. and we've moved away from that to having this wonderful nature conservation project where we have free roaming large herbivores and it's them and their actions their disturbance and the way they feed that's influencing the habitat that's coming back as a result and we've got loads of amazing habitat a real sort of um, mosaic of different um, types of habitat here that goes on to be fantastic for wildlife so that that's it in a nutshell in a nutshell in a nutshell but it is you know awesome and it's all about you know soil recovery nature recovery people having access to green space and also, you know, as a kind of byproduct of the rewilding project, we harvest meat from the project. We've got this wonderful uh, free-roaming, organic, pasture-fed meat, which is good for you know, good for people to eat, and yeah. you know, a much nicer way for the the animals to live. You know, just free-roaming and having a lovely life while they're around. So, what I was going to ask as well is like, I mean. Some people may think of this question. I don't know, but is what was the what was the turning point of why that change was made? What, was it you said there was the you know the you know lack of money or losing money? Mm-hmm. Was that the real tipping point of going? We've got to change something, or was it was there something deeper than that? Yeah, I think so. You know, the the yields and uh, wheat yields here are falling well short of the national average, 
And at the time, I think the um, dairy industry was heading for some pretty big rocks. Yeah. And so, you know, rather than carry on banging your head against a brick wall with, uh, you know, a failing farm, you know, it was time to do something different. And um, Izzy and Charlie, who owned the the estate and the the visionaries behind the project, Mm. you know, very much at that time were like, okay, we've got to do something different. And they were inspired by rewilding projects abroad. Uh, specifically in, in the Netherlands. And they said, you know, they can do it there. We can, you know, jolly well do it in Sussex. You can do it in Holland. You can do it in Sussex. And it so turns out you can. <laughs> it turns out you can. And, you know, it's been going, yeah, 22 years now. And, you wow. know, we've seen huge changes in that time in um, people's perception of rewilding. The fact that it's, you know, a mainstream word. Now people are talking about it. There's people rewilding large and small scale bits of land all over Britain, all over Europe, yeah. uh, and in, you know, all over the world. You know, it's a it's a huge movement now. And is- Isabella Tree, um, her book Wilding, has been a huge catalyst for getting people thinking about this and what we need in our landscape. So, you know, it had to be right for them to do it financially. It has to work e- economically for the estate mm. to keep going. But at the same time, you know, they've you know been part of this huge movement of rewilding all sorts of other places and there's this amazing you know wave of enthusiasm and optimism for for you know conservation on a landscape scale now i think it's like it was so exciting yeah and you know it's got so much momentum now and it's giving people hope that you can turn around the fortunes of a bit of land you know for wildlife in quite a short amount of time really and you know still produce food you know we've got the ecotourism as well so you know we've got glamping and camping and safaris here that help bring money into the estate it's employing loads more people now um so it's you know it's a win-win situation really it's just amazing and i love being part of it because it's different and exciting and it's getting people thinking differently yeah i think that's one of the good things isn't it when you're starting to whether it's getting people to think differently or challenging the status quo things i really like the economic side of of things like this because something that really gets me excited with land restoration nature restoration whatever is 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 the the systems in place to benefit more than just the one thing Mm. and when i hear about like you know you've got the ecotourism side of things you've got the job opportunities and i just because it when you see it work i don't know it really puts it always just puts a smile on my face because you're just Mm. like see like there is potentials everywhere and it doesn't have to be the same model it can be a new model with the same aspects of the system but how like was the the glamping because that's quite i don't know maybe i'm wrong in this but a safari idea as well i think is quite brave to go with was that from the get-go was that a plan for nep or did that kind of come in when the species started to come back was it then going oh we have an opportunity here or was that kind of always the goal I think it was a bit late on in the project because there's a lot of people visiting um, from uh, no, government government organisations, from mm. um, sort of uh, conservation organisations, that kind of thing, coming to visit. And so they got a vehicle to take people around in. And they're like, well, actually, you know, people are coming from quite a long way away. We need maybe somewhere to put them up. Let's set up a campsite. And this is, right. the, I, I understand this is how it happened. And so they set the campsite up as a somewhere that these, you know, um, you know, these teams can sort of, stay over and then sort of experience nap and then all of a sudden it's just like oh my god it's like a bush camp you know it's it's a commune it's an amazing kind of um (laughs) feeling out in the scrubland like you're in africa it's like a thorn felt kind of you know you get a lovely sunset and you're out and it's you know a bit dusty and it feels like you're going through these like little um sort of uh, army trucks and it just feels like you're 
yeah, on safari and you're in a bush camp. So, you know, it was a fairly natural progression at that point to then say, well, that's, you know, this could be an amazing ecotourism uh, venture. Mm. And it's, we've been blown away by how, you know, popular it is. And, you know, just seeing people here enjoying themselves, sitting out around the campfire in the evening, you're surrounded, you're in the heart of the rewilding project. So you're surrounded by nightingales singing in the spring, yeah. tawny owls hooting. And, you know, you can hear at this time of year, just starting to hear the deer rotting, you know, sort yeah. of hearing them roaring. So you're in it, you're in nature and you're, your car's way over there. No cars are allowed on it. So you're just back to basics. You're camping or glamping and we've got a wild swimming pond. So everyone can come here. You can walk straight out onto the project and into the rewilding area and just, be you know just have a lovely time and be away from everyday hustle and bustle yeah it's it's brilliant i think it's great and i I really think especially for the uk as as a nation that has kind of lost that appreciation for what it can have Mm. or what it used to have here i think something like that is just reminding people that appreciate what is in the united kingdom nature and wildlife wise and i think the ecotourism route is i i I love to see that grow in the uk i would just love to see it grow even more because not just holidaying in the uk but actually going to see wildlife and travel in this country to go and see that for that being the sole purpose like we do in other countries for different wildlife i think i think it's such a wonderful wonderful thing to be able to inspire other places but the big question i've got to ask is what the hell's come back to NEP then? What has like, <laughs> why are people coming to see, <laughs> see things? Uh, well, uh, so um, you're talking the large herbivores there, right? Well, anything. Let's yeah. talk about like, let's let's do from sky to ground and below maybe, Whoa, I don't know. Oh my word. I mean, not everything, but what's the, what's the key changes that we've seen at NEP? Okay, so it's all been driven by the large herbivores that we have here that I mentioned earlier. And um, so having these uh, different mouth parts and different animals that feed in different ways and have, you know, disturbed mm. the ground in different ways and disturbed the vegetation. So we've got um, Old English longhorn cattle. So all of these animals, are, by the way, are proxies for, you know, animals that would have been here in the past in some yeah. kind of guise. Although we're not trying to go back to a particular point in time, we're trying to replicate some of the animals that might have been here before. So the longhorn cattle are here in lieu of the aurochs, which is the wild oxen that would have been here in our, our landscape, you know, not too long ago. Mm. Uh, we have the Exmoor ponies. Um, they are here in lieu of the wild horse, you know, that yeah. we see in cave paintings from you know, 17, 18,000 years ago in France. You know, they're exactly, you know, the same kind of animal that would have been mm. moving around very similar genetically as well. Um, we've got... The Tamworth pigs in lieu of the wild boar. Yes, yeah. And they're great fun. Tamworth pigs are real movers and shakers in the rewilding project here. And we have fallow deer and red deer here as well, as kind of themselves, really. And so it's that ensemble of different animals that uh, are pushing back against the succession, especially in the southern part of the estate where... Uh, there's been an opportunity over several years at the beginning of the rewilding project where the fields were coming out of production before any animals were bought in. So Mm. um, they were applying for funds for putting the big stock fencing up here. And during that time, they were taking fields out of production. And it wasn't really, it was probably about maybe six or seven years where there weren't any animals coming in, uh, you know, any herbivores here. And there wasn't really much uh, human management either. And so during that time, the hedges had a chance to billow out. Um, emergent vegetation could get a foot foothold. Everything could start establishing itself without being sort of mm. chomped, chomped away Straight by away, the herbivores. Yeah. 
So got a foothold and then the animals came in about 2008, 2009 in the Southern Block. But in the rest of the, the project, they'd come in much earlier, sort of like around 2001, 2002, 2003. Mm. And in the, uh, in the Southern Block, uh, the animals, you know, started kind of fighting back against that succession with the scrub that had get a, got a foothold. Uh, but over the years, you know, they've not been able to completely get back on top of it. So we've got this amazing dynamic battleground in the middle where you've got the scrub pushing in one direction you've got the animals pushing back against it and it's that battleground that's really fantastic for wildlife because you've got all the scrub you've got all the edges of the scrub Mm. and you've got the open pasture areas we've got rushy wetland areas we've got uh, river restoration we've got streams we've got a hammer pond and a mill pond so there's loads of lovely habitat here and all the edges between it got wonderful old veteran trees oak trees here that have been in this landscape a long time and it's just given it all a new lease of life you know no fertilizers or pesticides or herbicides being put down um you know the soil is recovering the worms are coming back the moles are coming back amazing the the soil is recovering it's doing its thing it is uh, you know recovering and from that everything else can grow and you've got this amazing ecosystem below and above ground that's Mm. recovering as a result and when you're seeing, you know, the sort of the insects here, sort of, you know, the clouds of insects, uh, like the other yeah. day, uh, some of our safari guides were out with groups and they they saw these amazing, huge swarms of uh, flying ants and it was like smoke. The numbers yeah, are just... when you see them in great numbers. Yeah, just like smoke going over the top of the trees. And, you know, when you're seeing insects in those kind of numbers, you're like, oh yeah, something's working. And yeah. then that's having an amazing effect on the rest of ecosystem you know all the things that feed on the insects and yeah. birds bats you know all of that kind of stuff so anyway i went off on a real tangent there didn't i no no it's um, you know it's so lovely to hear you talk about it though because it's just i'm captivated by it because i want to see i mean i'm very lucky where i am and the listeners will know i'm near Hampstead heath and stuff like that and it's it's obviously it's not nep but it does have areas with for london that are quite wildy yeah. kind of search and you do have nice meadows and we see insect like the ants the flying ant days yeah. up there are like that you have these huge swarms and then you have the swifts come down and just it's like you st- stood in you know the alfred hitchcock film all of a sudden <laughs> with the swifts coming down you're like this is incredible like it's but you're amazing. in it yeah, yeah. And when you see it when you see wildlife in that number whatever really the species mm. it doesn't matter when you see it on mass like that it really is a eye-opener and a, and a stop to you to go like whoa i am part of something here i'm not not the dominant one that I think I, I know that's the important thing yeah. it's kind of putting us back in our place really isn't it yeah and I think uh, it might be the same for you up on Hampstead Heath but just having that scale of having a large area that feels wild yeah. I mean there's not many places especially sort of southeast England where you can really go and feel that you feel wild do you know what I mean but feel yeah even <laughs> if they're not completely just that little bit of I'm in a woodland or something there's yeah. not you know there's only small paths and, and things like that am I right in saying with the grazers as well that it's not just what they're eating that's important. It's mm. what's coming out the other end that's going oh, to be definitely. important. <laughs> Am I right, Sanders? <laughs> you're very, yeah, you're, you're correct there. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not always just about what they're eating, the way they're eating. And I'll, I'll just sort of qualify that a bit more, actually, the fact that we're not supplementary feeding them. So every, you know, oh, they have cool, to okay. make their own living. They're not getting yeah. used to being fed every day. <laughs> yeah, there's um, no feeding going on here. <laughs> so, you know, they have to, you know, look after themselves through the, the summer uh, summer months, you know, where you can, you know, make 
make hay while sun shines, but then also through the winter, and that's what influences them to eat more mm. of the kind of the scrubby, scrubby stuff and the hedges yeah. and things. So, uh, so that's you know them influencing the vegetation. But also with the herbivores, there are other elements, as you just pointed out, <laughs> such as um, the dung, uh, the mm. nutrients in the dung, uh, but also the way they move seeds around the site in their yeah through their gut and their dung, yeah. through hooves and trotters and uh, fur. So it's all the different ways of moving seeds and, and uh, other things are a vector <laughs> for, for other things to get around the site. And also it's disturbance, you know, just, yeah. you know, especially from the Tamworth pigs, the rootling that they do is where they're turning over the soil with their snouts like little plows and they're looking mm. for starchy roots and tubers to feed on. And whilst they're doing that, you know, they're providing an opportunity for little arable weeds to get growing, for butterflies to come and bask in those nice open areas, for bumblebees mm. to be able to get down into the ground to, to nest, that kind of stuff. So they're creating all sorts of opportunities for other wildlife and sometimes... You know, there must be some really subtle things that are going on out there from this disturbance, you know, from where the bull will be hoofing at the ground or, you know, where a deer makes a wallow when it's hot and it wants to cool down in the mud. Yeah. There's all these little, very little kind of micro niches, I suppose, that's providing mm. an opportunity for something. But we, we probably don't know what all those those things are because we haven't yeah. studied it closely enough. And I think that's the really interesting bit. It's the fact that it's a landscape of lots of opportunities. And we, we call it a kaleidoscope. kaleidoscopic yeah, I like habitat. that. Yeah. I really love that because it is like looking through, you know, a kaleidoscope. And every day there'd be a new bit of rootling or a new bit of browsing where a deer has gone, you know, sort of chewed some bark off of a tree and ring barked it or there might be you know a bit of hoofing that a bull has done or whatever there's you know yeah. all sorts of opportunities coming up on a daily basis so it's a constantly changing landscape in that respect uh, and yeah. i think that's that's you know having that disturbance factor from the animals is a key thing that's probably missing from a lot of our landscape yeah. Yeah, like you said, with the animals not being there, it's, mm. it's certain things that aren't being given to others. And because these are like short term things and long term things as well. If they're creating new, you know, for, for example, like, you know, dropping seeds places and the disturbance for plants to have the opportunity to come through, that's more of a long term thing. But like you said, a deer making a, a short or a pig or um, making a wallow for a short period mm. of time, that's then given shallow water for insects to come down and drink if they need that yeah. or other animals. It's always, which is a very short term thing. And it's like when you start to look at this system in place that has just gone from so many areas, um, which is why it's all not survived, yeah. Yeah, just little opportunities popping mm. up. And I'm always like, really keen to point out as well that rewilding isn't about land abandonment, which some people yes. kind of think it is. Yeah. And it's, you know, the herbivores are really essential part of that of that management. Uh, although you can do um, rewilding on a small scale and perhaps emulate some of the, the work that herbivores yeah. do th through, uh, I know, a trowel or a hedge yeah. cutter or some secateurs or something yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but you know yeah it's not about abandonment it's not about just walking out and shutting the gate it's actually about having something dynamic happening via the, the large herbivores well i guess because it, it makes sense because you think like you know we always think well nature knows best you go well no actually well i mean it will in regards to some things will survive but if we're actually looking about having the ecosystem back as its strength we are part of nature we can shape we have shaped it to disappear so we can shape it to come back stronger by leaving it things like you said if you take all the grazers don't put the grazers back and just close the doors mm the dominant plants will just take over and that's all you'll have yeah i guess so it, it is important to kind of scope it really 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's having that, you know, kind of landscape we would have had in the past with, you know, and herbivores would have been a very important element of yeah. that landscape. So, so it's just trying to, well, maybe we're never going to be able to, you know, replicate it completely, but we can yes. put the right kind of template in place that where you can get the same kind of uh, actions that herbivores bring. And this is like, like, it's so clear that this is hugely beneficial for wildlife and, and local nature and, and things, but we've got to talk about the workload. <laughs> That's probably a nice segue onto the workload, to be honest, because when you compare that kind of work to what the work would be on an intensive dairy farm or something, is it more work to do what we're doing? Sorry, sorry, I say we. I am not a part of NEP in any way, shape or form. <laughs> I was about to take credit for some work I've never laid a hand on. Um, <laughs> If you come and visit, you might never leave. Who well, knows? I, I've got a feeling if I come and visit now, you're going to be like, right, Ryan, go do that because you said we on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. you've got to do some work. And <laughs> you've got to keep. do some work now. Um, from For what you guys do now, is it, you know, is it comparable more? Is it more hands-on stuff to do now you've got it in this in this system? Um, I guess one of the things about rewilding it is, is it is lower inputs. So you've got less... Um, you, you know, you're not going out every day in your tractor and spraying the fields or harvesting. You're not yeah, going right. out, you're not rounding up cows on a daily basis to milk them. You're yeah. not doing all of that kind of stuff. So it's much lower input. Uh, but of course, the animals need to be checked. Um, and we have um, a couple of stockmen, uh, just brilliant. And, uh, you know, they're out there every day making sure that all the animals are happy and healthy. And so you, you still need to have people doing those jobs yeah uh, but it is much less um input on the whole project really but that yeah. not that they're sitting around <laughs> not doing much because they've kept very busy <laughs> like, can you make us a beaver pen <laughs> and that kind of thing so you know there's always lots to be doing um uh, here in, in that respect but yeah it's, it's much lower inputs than if you were on a conventional yeah. farm um, and what about like from a aside from the wildlife bit if we look at like a local community aspect which i guess is harder to do in england because i feel i feel like something else we've lost as much as our natural space is our kind of local community feel and please if you're listening don't Oh, that's, I'm not saying there is no local communities, but I'm saying it is still something that, especially I would say in the South, we've kind of lost that community feel. But do you feel like NEP is an opportunity to bring that back from a job opportunity and economic, uh, the economy point of view, but also just people enjoying having that on their doorstep? Uh, I think so, yeah. Um, we've got loads of people work here now and it's an amazing mm. community you know, of people that are here because they're passionate about what's happening here. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, you know, a wonderful family of, you know, people who are just wonderful at what they do. Um, so I feel very lucky to be part of that and that that is a community in itself. Yeah. Uh, but also we've got, you know, the most wonderful community of volunteers as well and some of them live locally. And during lockdown, uh, there was a lot more people visiting. So, you know, once we sorry opened up after lock, the first lockdown and people were doing their daily activities and could go a bit further afield, we had a lot more visitors here and we weren't really prepared for that. And so um, mm. we um, have this amazing team of over 100 volunteer rangers that, you know, oh, go wow. out every day. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, normally a, a couple of 
pairs of people that go out every day and they're talking to members of the public, handing out maps, telling them about wildlife sightings, you know, doing a bit of litter picking. And, you know, this is an amazing, that's an amazing community in itself as well that, you know, has just blown us away because of the enthusiasm that everyone's got for it. And, you know, they they really enjoy it and get something out of it themselves. But for us, you know, they're they're absolutely brilliant. We love them. And, you know, we've got um, uh, volunteers that come and help do uh, the wildlife surveys. We have uh, teams of volunteers that come and help manage the stalk project as well. So people yes. that are doing, you know, sort of feeding the the non-flying stalks that we have in the pen, but also doing the monitoring uh, of the stalks and what they get up to. So there's all sorts of stuff going on here and lots of lovely communities. And of course, there's lots of people that live around here in the local villages and so on. And, you know, we hope that they feel that they're part of the project mm. as well. And, you know, a lot of them come and enjoy walking their dog or coming on walks with their family here as well. Amazing. I, I love stuff like that. I, I really like when it it just includes everyone. I think it, uh, we said on the show, God, bloody how many times that, you know, people have to be on board for it to work. They just have to be. And I think it's lovely when you have a local community, especially from a volunteer point of view, or just people living nearby that go, I am part of this as well, or can be and and stuff. I love it. Um, I've got to ask you, what is your favourite thing there? You've got to have a favourite. You're an ecologist. Come on. Ooh, that's a tricky one. Can I guess? I reckon I can guess what type. Go on then. Well, okay, I'm going to go. I, I, it's an invertebrate. You're an invertebrate person. Although you have mentioned birds a lot, but maybe that's just because you've been doing bird ringing. You've also mentioned dragonflies a couple of times. So is it dragonflies? I do love dragonflies, <laughs> but I also love moths as well. Yes, yes, I love me a moth. <laughs> everyone loves a moth. Everyone um, loves a moth. Not everyone, but most people No, actually, do. That, that, is, that could not be more wrong. Yeah, a lot of people don't like moths. I'm going to retract my comment. Probably the same people that are going to send me the hate mail. Hate mail, yeah, yeah. There's a big Venn diagram there. <laughs> I love it. Um, but yeah, I like most things with wings, actually. Yeah, I love birds. I've got a soft spot for nightingales, um, yeah. particularly. But yeah, dragonflies, moths, butterflies. Just You've got the purple just... emperors. You've got a purple yeah. emperor um, colony, right? Yeah, we've got an amazing purple emperor colony. Probably one of the largest known um, colonies in the UK now, which amazing. is very exciting. And They're beautiful. Um, absolutely we've, stunning. We've seen one on Hampstead Heath. There's a colony on Hampstead Heath, and we've seen, I, again, I say we, I was with my girlfriend at the time, and she saw it, <laughs> but it was a female <laughs> on a dog poo bin. Brilliant. Classic. Like, yeah, classic. classic <laughs> yeah. And we just saw it, and we were just like, <laughs> well, actually, we were so surprised. We didn't think it was a purple emperor at first. We are like, no, surely not, is it? And then, well, yeah, we're just over the moon. That is lovely. Yeah, yeah they, for such a beautiful butterfly, they have got disgusting habits, it has to be yeah. said. <laughs> Hanging out on droppings. Yeah. <laughs> they love it. They do yeah. love it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the purple emperor is like the holy grail um, yeah. for, for lepidopterists. So uh, sort of June and July, we have uh, inundation of a lepidopterist that come and look for the purple emperor and they go crazy for it uh, just because it's we have it in pretty good numbers here you know yeah. um, and one year i think we the, the max count was uh about a few years ago was 388 wow. purple emperors in a day oh my is, god it's off the scale and you know Jeez. they're you know, for, for people that don't know what they look like they are stunning so the male purple emperor mm. is um quite a, they're quite a big butterfly but if you get the wings they kind of look black 
if they're not in the sun, but as soon as the sun hits them, they get this amazing kind of iridescent it's purple. Yeah. It's so stunning. The males are really boisterous. You know, they'll be defending their territories over the top of oak trees um, and um, seeing off other purple emperors, other butterflies. They see off birds as well. I've seen them chasing yes, all sorts of yeah, different birds. Read about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matthew Oates, who spends a lot of time watching the purple emperors, was sure he saw one seeing off a Lancaster bomber this summer as well. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get a more aggressive name for something to fight off as well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so that's amazing. And then the, yeah, the females also, you know, they're they're also very beautiful in their mm. own right, and they're this lovely kind of um, a sort of a satiny brown kind of color. Yeah, really, they are. Really Do you know what the size is one that's because we I've only seen a female. Um, mm. But still the size, I think that's what caught our eye straight away. It was just like, what is that? Like, that was huge for a butterfly. You know, you're seeing it, especially in this country, it really, like, dwarfed everything else. I know, they're really quite tropical looking, aren't they? Yeah, they yeah. really are. Um, and just the way that they act as well, it just kind of makes them very appealing. Uh, but they do come down onto sort of, yeah, um, fox and dog droppings. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they'll stick their proboscis in. Yeah, they do <laughs> like to get it. get some tasty minerals out. So um, <laughs> that's not as lovely when you're looking at them. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, so that's like one of our, you know, really lovely sort of yeah. um, headlines, you know, success headlines where, you know, they have come from probably being here in very small numbers to having this huge number of them here and not in the kind of habitat that you would potentially normally associate them with. So if you read a, a, a butterfly book, it'll probably tell you that purple emperor is a woodland species. Mm. Yet here we are in a scrubland with some oak trees and perhaps this is their optimum habitat, you know? Wow, but, that's interesting. Know, this, this kind of habitat. Yeah. So, um, so lovely to see them here in a slightly unexpected place. Yeah, that's really nice. Well, that will be my, you know, 300 in a day when I come next year. The target, yeah. Target to beat. Yeah, aspirations. <laughs> I'll just write the same one down twice. Um, right, so. <laughs> that's just what I do. That's just, on, I mean, that's how surveys. we all do records, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Times two, probably. Um, <laughs> um, so we talk about these grazers being here, and obviously, one thing that's well known in the UK is that we don't have things to control the larger grazers except for us. And we, we, you've already spoken about, you know, the benefit of the um, the more nature-friendly organic way of harvesting mm. meat for human consumption um but that is something i want to talk about because i think it's a really interesting topic to talk to uh, or to talk to you about and in a way that this can be done ethically and sustainably on how you manage the grazers here at nepa state not all of them but some of them how is that done at nep every year we are harvesting some animals from the project although we're quite low stocking density yeah um so we're not getting masses of meat off but we, we've got enough to have a business based on it which is wonderful yeah. and it's that kind of low density which makes it such special meat so uh, we have deer stalkers that come uh, late summer into the autumn just um, finish well, well short of the, the um, deer rot season. Um, so they'll do a bit of uh, stalking then and then later on in the winter. And um, so that, that's a deer. So we have lots of venison taken off the project each year. And then we have the cattle uh, and the pigs. So we're able to harvest some meat from them as well. And all of that gets sold uh, via our website, the Net mm -hmm. Wild Range. And also sold in our campsite shops. Over here camping, you can grab a few steaks and sausages. Oh my God, sausages. amazing. Imagine that camping. <laughs> and, and, you know, barbecue them um, at your tent, which is very cool. Um, yeah, so, that's really cool. Um, yeah, so it, it's 
you know, really showing that, you know, although then it's very low stocking density and it's not going to be a mass meat producer, um, the quality meat that you get from here, it is amazing. And obviously you are, you know, we're thinking about sort of um, eating less meat as a population we should be eating less meat and the meat that you do eat should be from regenerative farming and from yeah. rewilding projects and supporting that conserv that's kind of conservation grade meat and you know where it's a bit more nature friendly in its in its setup really yeah so a bit like is is higher quality less often really yeah. is what we're kind of looking at i i i think i believe as someone that doesn't really eat meat i've only just started to have to actually for health reasons more than anything to having to start eating meat again it's I'm going, well, if I'm going to do this, let's do venison. Also, that's the first time I've said that on the podcast. Do I need to announce that? I don't know. Everyone knew me as a vegan. So <laughs> <laughs> for two years, heads up, guys, I've had to start eating a bit, a bit of meat for health. But so I've decided to eat uh, yeah. venison as a way to just, you know, because, yeah, done. Well, it's but, a great um, thing to do is, you mm. know, we should be eating more venison. And like you say, sort of maybe, you know, as a population, generally, perhaps we should be eating more, uh, sorry, less meat. Yeah. Um, but the meat that we do eat is coming from a better place um, yeah. and, you know, make it go further. Yeah, exactly. make it go further. Like we used to, literally, it was, a, it was a luxury that we used to have. And I think starting to look at that as being the case and not a daily occurrence or three times a day, then you start to go, actually, when I am having it, I want it to last a long time. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Get it on the bone and then we can stew the bone afterwards. <laughs> well, exactly. That's what we, yeah. everyone should be doing, you know, using all the different mm. parts of the animal. Absolutely. And really exciting, I mean, sort of sitting alongside our rewilding project here, we've also got a new regenerative farm venture as well. So um, we've got a little suckling herd of Sussex red cattle and a, a chicken tractor and a market <laughs> garden as well. So this is, you know, um, the, you know, perhaps one step back from yeah. rewilding, sort of that's less extreme as rewilding, but showing that you can farm in a nature-friendly way yeah. and still produce food. Um, so this is a new thing then we've also been doing lots of wildlife surveys in that land as well to to show how regenerative farming can actually help um, nature come back to an area so we're looking at bats and birds and insects you know pollinators that kind of thing dung beetles to to show how a landscape can recover from you know kind of pony paddocks and that kind of thing how it can recover quite quickly through regenerative farming as well and soil recovery and water quality so it's all good stuff yeah, it really is. Do you think like NEP is? Because I was going to ask you what your what your thoughts are for farming for the future for the UK, which is a huge question, and I do not expect you to have the full responsibility of knowing the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, Penny, you'd be a millionaire, um, <laughs> potentially a billionaire. <laughs> wow, I've got to learn some more about this stuff. If that's the yeah. case. <laughs> But do you think NEP is not necessarily something that can be copy and pasted throughout the whole of the UK? But do you think there are, uh, I don't don't want to put words into your mouth, but do you think NEP is an example to say there are parts of NEP that can be easily used across any landscape in the UK? Absolutely. You know, a lot of people look at rewilding as being quite extreme. Uh, Regenerative farming, you know, is is less extreme. But what we can do is take elements of these kind of ways of land management and apply them to farms. And I think we need large areas of high value nature projects like rewilding and wetlands, those kind of big areas where there's reservoirs of wildlife. 
and then rewilding large areas and connecting them up through wildlife friendly farming I think is going to be the future and there's going to be support you know through the new environmental land management scheme for giving funding towards that you know farming subsidies to help that kind of uh, nature friendly uh, farming it's all about you know farming in harmony with you know the yeah. soil getting soil health back to, you know, restoring soil health, um, but working in harmony with nature as well. So it's great that government schemes are going to hopefully be able to facilitate that kind of thing going yeah, forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think hopefully it's a really so. exciting time. There's um, so much potential. Yeah. Uh, so much. <laughs> and there is a space for regenerative farming and wildlife-friendly farming, but, you know, you can have high production areas and nature-friendly farming and big linked-up corridors of, of, of nature conservation in our landscape. I think it's doable and it's yeah. the way we're move you know we're moving towards this kind of landscape I think it's a very exciting time Mm, absolutely um the last question of the podcast is again another new one um because again I was getting the same answer so time to re you know change some stuff up is if you could tell everyone advise anyone or recommend something to do regarding the natural world whether it's to go and see something do something try something immerse in this with the natural world or nature what would you say to go and do what would be your thing oh i like it well, for a wild experience, I would say if you've never heard a nightingale before, hear a nightingale. Hear it's just the most amazing thing. It will make your hair stand up on the back of your neck. It will give you goosebumps. Nice. I love the spring. I love the dawn chorus here at Nep. It feels like this God, is that how... must be like Glastonbury. Oh, my God, it's amazing. It's... <laughs> I've never heard a dawn chorus like it. And or it's... download. Is it more download? <laughs> Festival. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it quite yeah. heavy? Yeah. It can be a bit, especially when you're doing bird surveys, you know, it's yeah. overwhelming. You don't know what the hell is going on, how many white throats are over there. And, um, yeah. But it's, you know, one of those things experience a dawn chorus, get out of bed early, go, yeah. go, and, go and listen to a dawn chorus on a site that's got, you know, good um, sort of songbird population and get out and hear a nightingale whilst you can. You know, they're, they're just such an amazing, beautiful thing that we have. We're so lucky to still have them in our countryside. And yeah. I feel sad when I think of those people that, that, that haven't ever heard one because it is the most beautiful thing. I mean, thing. you're talking to one. <gasps> Genuinely, you are. I'm a Londoner. Ryan, come down. I will take you to hear and the nightingales. I think spring. That's... <laughs> spring next year, mate. That's it. That's it. It's in the diary. It's in the diary already. <laughs> the spring Get the tent the ready, mate. <laughs> I'm six foot seven. Can I have a bell tent, please? Otherwise, it is very difficult. It's all yours. <laughs> no, I, I would love to take you out to hear the nightingales. Oh, please. Everyone let's do has it. to do it once in their life because yeah, it's absolutely. very special. So that, that's my top tip. Amazing. Well, you heard it here. You've got everyone listening, including myself. And Christina, when you listen to this episode, babe, we've got to go to NEP to hear a night. <laughs> um, Penny, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It's been a pleasure to learn a bit more about NEP um, as someone that's not been there yet. Um, and I'm absolutely pumped to come and visit. So yeah. thank you so much for joining me on today's show. And I appreciate the time considering I know it's probably one of the busiest time of the year for you as well. It's such a pleasure. It's been lovely meeting you and I hope to meet you in real life. You will. You are, mate. You'll regret inviting me because I won't leave. Um, but... <laughs> We got all that work to do, haven't you? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> you can have to help me on a survey. How about that? You can help me on a night oh, that, survey. Yeah, hundred percent survey. Um, I'll just yeah, yeah. I'm I'm Let's not I'm good it. at manual labour. I don't know what I'm on about. My job's very manual. So. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'll find something else for you to yeah, do. Yeah, you'll find it. If any dogs need walking, mate, they're mine. Right. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, thank you so much. Lovely to have you, Penny. Uh, all the best. Cheers, Ryan. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.